now concerning the ministry to the saints. It is unnecessary for me to write to you, for I know your eagerness and I boast about you to the Macedonians. Achaia has been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I am sending the brothers so that our boasting about you in this matter would not prove empty, and so that you would be ready, just as I said. Otherwise, if any Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we, not to mention you, would be put to shame in that situation. Therefore, I considered it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance the generous gift you promised, so that it will be ready as a gift and not as an extortion. The point is this, the person who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and the person who sows generously will also reap generously. Each person should do as he decided in his heart, not reluctantly or out of compulsion, since God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make every grace overflow to you, so that in every way, always having everything you need, you may excel in every good work. As it is written, He distributed freely, He gave to the poor, His righteousness endures forever. Now the one who provides seed for the sower and bread for food will also provide and multiply your seed and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way for all generosity which produces thanksgiving to God through us. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Because of the proof provided by this ministry, they will glorify God for your obedient confession of the gospel of Christ, for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone. And as they pray on your behalf, they will have deep affection for you because of the surpassing grace of God in you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. I can see they've placed you closer here this morning. Did they give you a warning that you're in the splash seats that you should probably be wearing? So, uh, let's, let's, let's begin with prayer. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we again thank you for your word. We are confident in you and in it and your Holy Spirit to speak to us today. My prayer is that you would, um, that we would hear what you would have us to hear. You would encourage, strengthen, reveal yourself to us. Through Christ we pray. Amen. John Maxwell tells the story of a couple that went to a county fair where rides in a biplane were being offered for $50. The husband said, I would love to take a ride in that biplane. The wife said, that's $50. That's expensive. And $50 is $50. Well, this conversation repeated itself every year when they went to the county fair. I'd love to take the, a ride in that plane. $50 is $50, year after year, until finally the guy's in his mid-70s, and he says to his wife, if I don't ride in that biplane this year, there's a chance I may never ride in that, in that thing. And the wife responds in the same way. I know, honey, but it's expensive. $50 is $50. Well, this year the pilot actually overheard the conversation and made them an offer. He said, tell you what, if you, I'll give you a ride. You pay me up front, $50, and I'll give you a ride. And if, if you can take that whole ride without saying a word, I'll give you the ride for free. Give your money back. They said, deal. So the pilot takes them up and makes every maneuver he knows to make them yell. 
I mean, he does loop-de-loops and rolls and flies upside down. Finally, he lands the plane. He yells the guy behind him and says, hey, that was amazing. I, I did everything I could to make you say a word. You didn't say a word. The guy says, yeah, I almost said something after that first roll when my wife fell out, but $50 is $50. You know, nothing causes trouble in marriage quite like money. Am I right? You, maybe you've heard the numbers that 80% of marriages that end in divorce, their number one stress is money. How many of us right now are stressed because of the inflation in the last couple of years? But we don't like to talk about money. On the other hand, I, I also read recently that 90% of people that say they are in great marriages, they talk about money frequently. Why is it that we don't like talking about money in marriage? Why is it that we don't like talking about it in the church? I think it's because money is not primarily about a number figure. It's about emotion. Money connects to us deeply emotionally to our desires and our dreams and our hopes or our disappointments or our regrets or our, our envy or greed. That's why it catches our attention today in this passage where we're looking at 2 Corinthians 9 7, where the Bible says God loves a cheerful giver. Money's about emotion, and God loves a cheerful giver. But I read that, it kind of stops me in my tracks because does it seem like those two words are not words that ought to go together, cheerful and giver? I mean, intellectually, I get it, but it's kind of like saying cheerful loser. You know, anybody have a fantasy football team that's 0-3 right now, like I do, and you're going into the games, you're going to the games today thinking, I want to be a cheerful loser today. No, I want to be a cheerful one. I don't want to be a cheerful giver. I want to be a cheerful getter. I mean, honestly, when you play the lottery, you don't play because you want to be a cheerful giver. And so it's when then God says, the Bible says God loves a cheerful giver, and while we understand it intellectually, it's tough in the heart. Now, God's, Paul's primary goal here, of course, is not to indulge their pursuit of happiness. His primary goal is to help them do the right thing, to live like Christ, to honor God. Specifically, he's challenging these Christians in the church in Corinth to give generously to help out Christians who are experiencing a famine in Jerusalem and Judea. Paul is on a missionary journey here in, in Greece and Turkey and Part of the thing he's doing is making that collection. But it's in the midst of taking up that offering that Paul says, oh, and by the way, as you give, God loves a cheerful giver. He challenges them to handle their finances in a way that brings them not anxiety or trouble, but joy. He makes the point what's at stake here is nothing less than your relationship with God. God loves and your happiness, a cheerful giver. So let's take a look at what Paul has to say here, kind of unpack it a little bit, and find out how joy comes in handling our finances God's way. What he says here at the beginning, I don't think is, you'll, you'll see many places, but he said one of the reasons that godly givers are joyful givers is because you can be thankful that you're a positive example for others in your generosity. Verse 1, he begins by saying, concerning the ministry of the saints, it's unnecessary for me to write to you. For I know that your eagerness, I know your eagerness and boasted about you to the Macedonians, the churches that are north of, of Corinth, 
Achaia, meaning the Corinthians, has been ready to give since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. See, the backstory is that when Paul was with the Corinthians about a year earlier, he shared the need for the Christians in Jerusalem who would help start them and said, it's time for you to, to pay back. It's time for you to bless them as they've blessed you. And they said, sign us up. And they made some real generous commitments. And Paul took their commitments, their eagerness, and took it up to the churches in Macedonia like Philippi and other churches. And he shared their story. The Macedonians are, are, were like, well, we want to be in. We want to be part of that. Now, a year has passed, and the Corinthians haven't yet collected their offering. That's why Paul says in verse 4, I'm sending the brothers so that our boasting about you, you know, to the Macedonians in this matter, would not prove empty, and so that you would be ready just as I said. But here's the wonderful picture. God uses the Corinthians to encourage generosity, to encourage the Macedonians, and then he uses the Macedonians' giving to then encourage the Corinthians to finish the work that they have promised God to do. Generosity inspires generosity, and when you're generous and your generosity inspires others, you can be joyful. That's how the church ought to be. Iron sharpens iron. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 24 says, let us consider one another in order to provoke love in good works. It is so easy to think selfishly about our spirituality. Oh, I go to a small group for me. No, no, no. The Bible says consider others. You need to go to that group because you can provoke others to love in good works. It's easy to think about our giving and our sacrifice and our service and just about us. What do I get out of it or what do I have to do? But Paul said, no, no, think about others and how you your example is encouraging them. Can you think of positive Christian examples of giving that encourage you? I really wonder how often the apostles thought of an example that Jesus gave. Luke chapter 21 tells this story. In my mind, this is kind of how things, I, I see things unfolding. When people would bring their offerings to the temple, they would place them in a metal container basically and and, um, and they brought coins, and so if somebody had a bunch of coins, it sounded like, you know, some rapid-fire machine gun or something, all this money going, and people would hear that and go, oh, there's a really generous person. But one day, Jesus said, look at this, look at this widow, poor widow. She came, and she had two lepta to give, leptas, worth, worth maybe a penny or less than a penny. And when she gave, the sound that they heard was, Basically, plink, plink. And Jesus said, did you hear that? That's the sound of generosity because everybody else out of their abundance gave what they had. But she, out of her poverty, gave all that she had. Can't you see the apostles later on suffering for Christ? Sacrificing for Christ? Having very little because of following Christ? And remembering that example and Jesus saying, she out of all, that's generous giving. Out of, out of her poverty gave all that she had. And her generosity inspired their generosity. When I was growing up, um, one of the examples for us was the Russell family. The Russell family was constantly sacrificing, constantly giving, even though they didn't have a lot themselves. There was a point when the Russells um, left, the church where, left our church in, to start a church in their hometown in Conneantville. But a couple of years into the church plant, the preacher 
had abused the finances and left town, leaving the church in debts they couldn't pay. I've shared this story with you before, if it sounds familiar. The Russells could not, Chapman, Catherine Russell couldn't bear the idea that their church was going to get a bad reputation because they couldn't pay their bills. So Chap Russell, who was working at Talon Zipper at the time, I think, um, took out a second job. Actually, he took out a second mortgage. They took out a second mortgage on their house, and then he took out a second job to pay off that mortgage. You know, in the 30 years of new life, we've had to make some financial sacrifices. Can't tell you the number of times I've thought about the Russells and thought, but I've never taken out a second mortgage. I've never taken a second job to be able to pay the mortgage so the church can, pays, can pay the bills. And boy, God honored them. And generosity inspires generosity. How many of you were inspired a couple of weeks ago when Lynn Hike stood up here and shared about Lazarus Motor, uh, Motor Works? She and her husband Dan and Mike Fricks have gone together to start an organization because they know people need cars who can't afford cars, and so they, they take donated cars and get them in running order and then make sure the people who get the cars will actually take care of them and can afford to maintain them. And they've just started this wonderful, when she shared that, how many of you were inspired thinking, man, I'd like to be generous. Lord, make me creative like that for your kingdom. How many of us were inspired? Have been, I have been encouraged by Dale and Nancy Spalding. Remember a couple of years ago we were raising money um, for a building campaign and, and Dale really wanted to go into ministry and Nancy really wanted more time to volunteer and so they sold their large house, moved into a condo, um, downsized their financial demands so they could retire early, and Dale, for years, ran our Passion for Planting ministry here. And I don't know, generosity inspires generosity. That, I, I look at that and think, oh, Lord, make me that generous. Actually, there's a part of me that's like, Lord, I don't ever want to be that generous. Don't make me sacrifice like that. But no, generosity does inspire generosity. Who is it that inspires you? I remember when I was young, and there was no youth ministry. My older siblings were in high school, and my parents basically said, if we don't do it, nobody's going to do it. And so they started the youth ministry. We went with the Smiths, and they started the youth ministry, which meant every Sunday night, they were leading the youth ministry. Every Sunday night, they were preparing the message and sharing them. They were preparing the retreats. They were taking the kids on trips to... To, 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 um, to Pittsburgh or to some convention here in the Washington, D.C. area. My parents' generosity in their time and their commitment to the ministry taught me something about the importance of generosity to God, the importance of the kingdom. Who has inspired you by their example of generosity? Who has encouraged by your example of generosity. Iron sharpens iron. That's what the church is. Another reason that God's people are joyful people in giving is because they're confident in their supplier. Doesn't it make sense? If you're not confident in your provision and your provider, you're going to be anxious. But if you're confident that the supply is plentiful, you're going to be joyful. Listen to what Paul says in verse 8. 
And God is able to make every grace overflow to you so that in every way, always having everything you need, you may excel in every good work. Notice the superlatives there. It's kind of like, back off, Paul. You know, like every grace, overflow, every way, always, everything you need, excel, every good work. It sounds like hyperbole if he were talking about himself, but he's talking about God. The key is those first four words, God is able, God is able. Paul was confident and joyful because his confidence is in God is able, not himself. He doubles down in verse 10 and he says, and now the one who provides seed, speaking of God, for the sower and bread for food will also provide and multiply your seed and increase the harvest of your righteousness. The Bible tells us every good and perfect gift comes down from above, from the Father of the heavenly lights. But it's so easy to feel like, no, it comes from us. Kind of reminds me of that story of the arrogant scientist who got into conversation with God someday and said, God, you must feel like you're not needed anymore. We've figured out science so well we can do everything that you can do. And God says, oh, really? Okay, have you contest with you. Let's have a bird-making contest. The scientist says, you're on. God scoops up some dirt, blows on it, out comes this beautiful exotic bird. By the way, this is a made-up story. This didn't really happen, <laughs> in case you're wondering. Um, beautiful bird. The, the scientist reaches down, scoops up some dirt. God says, stops him right there. He said, no, 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 no. You make your own dirt. <laughs> How often do we need to hear God say, no, make your own dirt? Because what I do is I think, no, it's my car. It's my education. I worked for it. My awards, I earned them. My clothes, I bought them. You know, my house, my car, whatever. It's all from what I have done. And God looks at us and says, make your own dirt. Who gave you your mind? Who gave you your abilities? Who gave you your ambition? Who gave you your opportunities? Do they come from you? Are you the supplier? Or am I? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, 7, what do you have that you did not receive? And if in fact you did receive it, why do you boast as if you hadn't received it? He goes on in verse 14 of 2 Corinthians 9 to say, and as they pray on your behalf, verse 15, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Paul connects our gift to God's gift. What's the indescribable gift of God? Jesus Christ, salvation. It's a gift of God. The reason we give is not because it's out of our good. The reason that we, the motivation for our giving is that God first gave to us. We love because he first loved us. And now to whom much is given, of whom much will be required. So the question is, if we want to increase our joy, we have to increase our trust in our provider. How do you do that? Well, one is to be thankful for everything. I'll talk about that later in a devotion, but it's one reason why God gave us the challenge of first fruits. Not because he needs the first fruits, but because we need them to trust in him. First fruits giving, in the Old Testament, God said, whenever the crop comes in, the first crop comes to me. When the first crop that you bring in goes to God and you're a farmer, what does that do? That makes you say, my trust is not in this crop, my trust is in God. I don't trust in the crop that I see. I trust in the God who gives the crop. 
and I am thankful to him for his provision. And then what happens? You give your first crop to God and God provides for you the next crop and he just increases your faith. Yep, your trust is in me and not in what you see. But that's so hard to do. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you as well. What our tendency is, is to trust in what we can figure out and what we can see and make happen and do. And then when we figure it all out, then we're going to give to God. Reminds me of the guy who had a wife who owned a cat and he despised that cat for obvious reasons. The cat hair, the cat destroying the furniture, the cat allergies. So one day the wife goes away for a couple of days and entrusts the cat to the husband. Big mistake. He takes care of the cat in kind of a eternal life sort of way. So she comes home and the cat can't be found. She looks and can't find the cat. She says to her husband in desperation, won't you do something to help me get this cat back? He says, sure. He takes out a whole bunch of ads offering a $2,000 award for the return of the cat. He has a friend who says, are you nuts? Offering a $2,000 reward for this cat and you don't even like this cat? He says to his friend with a smile creasing his face, well, when you know what I know about that cat, you can afford to take the risk. <laughs> and then what we do with our finances sometimes. We've figured it all out ourselves. We know how we can be safe. And then we give. God says, I want you to give because you know me. Because you know that I'm your provider. You trust in me. Give your first fruits to me. That means your first priority in financial planning is trusting in God. And I'm so thankful that so, so many of you do that. When you look at your personal finances, when you look at your business, you think first to God. It's the first commandment. No other gods besides God. No, no other gods before God. The first check you write to is to the church. The first plan that you make is your plan for generosity, not for vacations or cars or houses or college education or retirement, but first fruits to God. And parents, that's why it's really so important. You want to disciple your kids. You want your kids to love the Lord. You teach your kids when they are young, give your first to God, first tenth to God. I'm so thankful my parents did that. And they will learn, 2 Corinthians 8, 9, 8, and God is able to make every grace overflow to you. Confident, people who are confident in God's provision are joyful people. Paul now gets specific on what cheerful giving looks like. Some characteristics, one is generosity, verse nine, verse six. The person who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. The person who sows generously will also reap generously. It's the law of the harvest. The miserly person holds on to the seed. I don't want to give too much seed. Uh, the generous person opens the hands, just generous with the seed, and there's a and there's a, uh, a reaping of a harvest as a result. You know, the word miser and miserable are the same root word. People who live like this are miserable. On the other hand, the Bible tells us that Jesus, even though he knew, even though he was in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. But he made himself to nothing. He emptied himself, and nobody was more joyful than Jesus. 
people who live close-handed, they're looking to grab every chance they get. They look at every situation and say, how can I take advantage of this for my own personal benefit? I, I don't care how it affects other people. Open-handed people are generous. Jesus says in Matthew 5, 40, if somebody asks you for your shirt, give them your coat as well. Be generous with your stuff. Verse 41, if anybody forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. If you're splitting the bill at the restaurant, are you the kind of person that's really afraid that you're going to be taken advantage of? Are you really hoping that somebody else is the one who's going to really cover most of the bill? Or are you kind of like, no, I'm going to go to the second mile with this. When somebody asks you to serve in the nursery for an hour, are you ready to give them two? If somebody helps you move, if somebody, you, somebody asks you to help them to move for a couple of hours, are you ready to give them four? That's why I think preachers, when they're asked to preach for half an hour, ought to preach for an hour. It's because we want to be <laughs> generous. You're not very impressed. Verse 42, Jesus says, give to the one who asks. When somebody asks, are you ready to give? My wife is a generous person, ready to give. <laughs> a couple of weeks ago, I'm, I'm upstairs working so I can hear what's going on. The doorbell rings. And Laura was telling me, I just I got the story clear, clever. A sixth grade girl comes to the door and says, I'm raising my money for my sixth, sixth grade class. You know, it's fall. So the kids are going around selling their, selling their um, chocolate bars for, to raise money. Raising money for my school. Would you buy a couple of chocolate bars? Sure. She ra- she, Laura buys a couple of chocolate bars. Literally, she had hardly closed the door. Doorbell rings. An eighth grade little girl is at the door with her candy bars. She's like, I know that girl. (laughs) You can see the trouble that she's having. She's following this other girl. And she's like, I know you just gave to that other girl, but I'm raising money for my school too. Would Would you help me out with that? And Laura's like, sure, of course I will. And so she buys a couple more candy bars, closes the door, it's probably five, ten, no more than 15 minutes later, the doorbell rings again. This time, it's a little girl, and her box is filled with candy bars. And Laura says, I can see what's happening. She's following those other two girls, and everybody's saying, no, we already bought candy bars. We're not gonna. And so guess what? Our house looks like a Hershey's factory at this point. I mean, we're just like bringing all of this stuff. When, when somebody needs help, are you ready to give? Is that your inclination? Or are you ready to be tight-fisted? Another, you see, example, another application for generous giving or for joyful giving is you give eagerly in a timely manner. When the Christians needed help in Jerusalem, the time to give by the Corinthians was then. And so Paul commends them in verse 2. I know your eagerness. I boasted about that. You know, the, the Corinthians are ready to give. They've been ready to give since last year. When it's time to give, give. Somebody once observed, you ever wonder what would have happened if certain people in Jesus' life had delayed their giving? What if Mary had waited a week to pour the precious perfume from the alabaster jar on Jesus' feet? What if the man who owned the colt used for the triumphal entry had said, I'm going to wait until I've ridden that colt myself a few times before I lend it to somebody else? What if the owner of the house where Jesus and his disciples celebrated the Last Supper had said, I think I'll host Jesus another time after the holiday demands are over? 
All these events transpired, you see, in the final week of Jesus' life. If any of those people had delayed for a week, he or she would have missed the opportunity to give to the Lord. Proverbs 3.27 says, When it's in your power, don't withhold good from the one to whom it belongs. The Latin proverb says, He gives twice who gives quickly. Sometimes people think they're being savvy by holding on. Don't pay the bills until you really have to. Don't give until the end of the year and you have it all in yourself. The time to give is now. Third attribute is positive attitude. We've read this already, verse 7. Each one should give, should do as he has decided in his heart. Underline that we're decided, not reluctantly or out of compulsion, since God loves a cheerful giver. Loving giving is a matter of the heart. Joyful giving is a matter of the heart. It's a matter of affections. I performed a wedding last weekend, and um, one of the most joyful weddings I've ever been a part of. This couple's been dating since 2012. One of them just filled with joy. It's kind of interesting, though, when it came to the time for the exchanging of the rings. The groom gets the ring, and he's about to place it. It's a beautiful ring, gold ring, about to place it on the bride's finger. And he says to me, you know, I'd really rather buy a car. The bride takes the grant and her ring for the groom and says, you know, I'd really rather buy some new clothes. Now, that didn't happen. But can you imagine if you did, what would you think if you went to a wedding and at the exchange of the ring time, the, the groom and the bride are kind of like, I really don't want to do this, but everybody's expecting it of me. You think, there's going to be trouble in that marriage. And the problem is the rings. It's the heart. And so we come on Sunday morning and we offer, and the offering bag is passed. Or we look at our budgets and we decide what we're going to give. I'd really rather have money for a vacation. I'd really rather have money for clothes. I'd really rather have money for a newer, nicer car. But I'm going to give because I guess I ought to give that right thing to do. The problem isn't the finances. The problem is the heart. God loves a joyful giver. And we give because we decide in our hearts this is the loving thing to do. And then your emotions sometimes follow. <laughs> but I will admit full, completely freely that it is really hard sometimes for head and heart to align. We want to do the loving thing, but it's easier to be, more natural to, to be stingy. If anybody was, loved God, it would be Billy Graham, right? Billy Graham's wife, Ruth, tells the story of a time when young in their ministry, they didn't have a lot of money, they were at a church, in a church service, visiting a church, and the offering plate was being passed, and Billy, she knew, had two 20s and a five in his pocket. And he reached in for the five and pulled out a 20, kind of disgusted, puts the 20 back in, but the plate's getting closer. Reaches for another, pulls out another 20, puts it back in. This time the plate is almost there. Reach, I guess one more chance. Reaches in, still pulls out another 20. So finally the plate's there. He throws it in, plate goes past. Ruth said, she whispered to Billy, don't worry, Billy. I'm sure God gave you credit for the $5 bill. <laughs> I understand that. I want to do the right thing. I really do believe that I ought to be generous with God, but 
heart and head don't always line up. St. Augustine said, where your pleasure is, there your treasure is. Where your treasure is, there is your heart. Where your heart is, there is your happiness. Where your treasure is, there your heart is. And if your heart is really there, when you're generous with God, it's going to bring you joy. The good news is you can decide. Each person should do as he has decided in his heart what is the loving thing to do. That means when you tip the wait staff generously and you're tempted to second guess later, you be joyful. When you sacrifice your time to coach a team or serve the community and it causes stress because you don't have enough time to do other stuff, don't let, rob, don't let Satan rob you of your joy. Choose to be joyful. When you sacrifice here to work in the church and you get frustrated because other people just kind of come in and leave, they don't serve the way that you think they ought to, don't let Satan rob you of your joy you be thankful that you can serve and you do serve as you do. Where your treasure is, there your heart is. Where your heart is, there your happiness is. Next, finally, Paul gives us motivation for generosity. It starts with understanding that generosity is a wise, generosity with God is a wise investment. Verse 11, you'll be enriched in every way for all generosity which produces thanksgiving to God through you who will enrich you in every way. We talk about this a bunch. I'll talk about it later. But I really want to focus on the other motive, and that is to make a difference in the name of God. God will give your life meaning as he uses you in your generosity. Verse 12, for the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Their generosity is causing other people to be thankful to God. Because of the proof provided by this ministry, they will glorify God for your obedient confession of the gospel of Christ. When you are generous, you're confessing the gospel of Christ, the good news of Christ, and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everybody. Mother Teresa, I love that line. She said, I'm just a humble pen, pencil being used in the hand of God writing a love letter to his world. Everybody needs to wake up with a sense of meaning and purpose, like your life matters. And when you are generous in the work of God, your life matters. He's going to use your life in a way that is meaningful, to change lives, to cause people to, to know God and to celebrate God and give thanks to God. I'm so proud of our campus pastor and our Linton Hall campus, and I'm proud of all of our staff, but um, uh, Preston Condor. He's coaching, he's the varsity quarterback coach for Gainesville High School. See, he has a lot of abilities, he has a lot of talent. He was a uh, college football, uh, he was a college quarterback, and he was looking for a way to serve God by serving in the community, offering his talents in service, and he offered them to the high school coach there at Gainesville, and they made him the quarterback coach, and the Gainesville team is doing very well. In fact, the quarterback is leading the, you know, has some of the best stats in all of Northern Virginia. I like to say, Preston, it's all because of you. He won't take that credit, though. But he was praying. He didn't want, just want to do a good thing. 
and like I'll represent God with a quiet voice with not saying anything. He was praying, God, help me find a way to share Christ, to make disciples. One day, he overheard a chant. One of the players would say, who did? And a bunch of the other players started chanting, God did. Who did? God did. Who did? God did. And Preston was like, I, am I on the wrong football field? You know, what is this about? And so he asked the leader of the chant, he says, do you believe in God? Well, yeah. Would you like to lead a Bible? What do you think about leading a Bible study for these players? He was like, great. Preston said, do you have anyone else that would want to help you lead this study? And he said, yeah. And so he got together some kids for the varsity and the, and the JV, and he trained them for a couple of weeks how to lead a Bible discussion. And then he released them. He just shows, he just opens the door basically and lets them in. And he'll pop his head in to kind of see what's going a little bit. But then he, um, he'll coach them, he'll train them in disciple making um, outside of those gatherings. Lives are being changed. He said, you have 250 pound football players, high school volley, varsity players weeping in the middle of these Bible studies because they've never experienced anything like this before. A few weeks back, Preston said to the leaders, you've been sharing the gospel. You think you need to offer an invitation for salvation? They said, sure. So a week ago Thursday, they told the players, we're going to offer salvation. Anybody who wants to be baptized, we're going to have a baptism service. And so they did. And that night, 15 football players were baptized into Christ. You know, to the, to the glory of God. Now, <laughs> uh, the work that he's doing has gotten the attention, actually, of Inside Nova newspaper. They did an article. They didn't talk about the baptisms, but they did an article, a very favorable article on that this past week. But that took sacrifice. Preston's a busy guy. He has lots of responsibility. He has a wife he would like to spend time with. He has a ministry that he's responsible for. It's not easy for him to sacrifice the time to go coach a varsity team night after night, week after week. But God is using his sacrifice to bring him glory, to change lives. Now, maybe you say, I can't do that. I can never imagine doing something so that 15 people are baptized in one night. I can never imagine doing something that has such impact for Christ that, that I get a newspaper article written about me. But you know, did you notice Paul here did not write to individuals? He wrote to the church of Corinth. The victories that they experience are not victories of individuals. They're victories of the body of Christ. And when you serve as a, in the body of Christ, no matter what you are doing, every victory is your victory. You are making it happen. You know, recently... Um, Dale Spaulding, who now lives in Texas, wrote me a note, and he said, I love numbers. I love seeing th things quantified. And by God's divine hand, on New Life's 30th anniversary, I can imagine what those numbers would reveal. Numbers of lives eternally changed for the glory of God through salvation and baptism. Marriages rescued from the brink of collapsing. Healing from hurts and habits and hang-ups. People set free. Financial struggles overcome. Cultural Christians transformed into real disciples of Christ. 
Churches started because of hands-on support and encouragement. Countless other churches indirectly impacted by our free resources. Families supported with, with desperate needed household items as they were beginning to lose hope. Marketplace to ministry leaders whose life trajectory has been changed to God's glory. New lifers who've come and gone and taken New Life DNA with them to other places. Leaders developed who are now active ministers in their community. Community members who are ex- who experienced God here in the end zone. Last week, Donnie uh, Williams stood up here. You never even met Donnie. He has a church of about 1,500 people, growing church in Raleigh, North Carolina, who said their church was started by New Life, and when they went to multi-site, they came to see what New Life was doing. When all of those stories are happening, stories that you're not even aware of, That's not because one or two people have done something. That's because there have been people week after week, year after year, who greet, who teach kids, who hold babies. I think about those people who are making food, lunches for kids at camp in the summer. People who organize volunteers and clean toys and year after year check fire extinguishers, lead Bible studies, work security, make deliveries. You know, four years ago, uh, Brendan Loveless, our worship leader, told me today, four years ago today, he was diagnosed with cancer. And Brendan said, Brent, I just, Brent told me more than once, actually, Brent, do you know how generous people have been with Natalie and me as we've gone through this time, giving us food, giving us support, giving us financial support? And what I need you to understand is, we are the body of Christ. Paul is writing here to the body of Christ, and when there is one victory, it's everybody's victory for the work that they've done. And God is getting the glory. You're a humble pencil in the hand of God. You may never, you may never be that person who has 15 people baptized, but he's making a difference, writing a love letter to the world through you. Now, what's your next step? What one step could you take this week to be a cheerful giver that if you made it, it would change your life? Jesus says, freely you've been given, freely you've received, now freely give. And when you do, God will make you a cheerful giver if you let him. Heavenly Father, make us your church, make us your people for your glory. I thank you that we get to experience the joy of the fruitfulness of the abundance that you give. But Lord, help us to be faithful, especially because so often there's such a delay between the sowing and the reaping. Because so many times there are seasons where we can't see the work that you're doing, the fruit that you're producing. But Lord, we want to trust more in you. To that end, we pray that you would work in us through Christ. Amen.